let's dive into the scriptures. We finished the book of Ecclesiastes last week, and so this week we've got to do something else, and I'm very thrilled that we are uh, going to start, and for the rest of the year, we're going to study the Gospel of Luke together. I love the Gospel of Luke. It is uh, just, you know, it's one of my four favorite Gospels for sure, and uh, it's uh, excellent, and I'll share a little bit about why I love it today. We are, uh, Luke, unlike, well, in a different way than the other Gospels, really gives an, an introduction. He tells us why he wrote this. And so um, that's what we're going to look at today, just the first four verses of Luke, and then we will speed up like crazy next week. But let's look at the first four verses of Luke together. Luke writes, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, in this moment of silence, we ask that you speak to us about your word. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that, uh, that in the very beginning, within the first century, you uh, moved on the hearts of these men to gather the details, the facts about your life, and to put them together in a way that was uh, important and significant for the early believers uh, who needed encouragement and certainty and, and, uh, and comfort and hope to understand what you have done for us. Lord, what a gift. What a gift these Gospels are. Lord, thank you uh, that we get to examine the life of Jesus in, in detail over the next six months. Lord, would you open our eyes so that we can see our Lord and Savior new and fresh, that we would know Jesus better, that we would walk with you closer. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I, uh, one of the privileges of my job is that for, you know, the last 19 years, the books that I have read the most are Bible commentaries. I mean, that's like what I've spent time reading. You know, I, the, I have the great joy of getting to be a teacher of the Bible. And, you know, whenever you start a new book, you kind of find the three or four best commentaries and, you know, based on what, however you decide what's best and, and you dig into them. The thing is, if you're a scholar of the Bible, an Old Testament scholar or a New Testament scholar, one, you've given your life, I mean many years of your life, to studying ancient languages and cultures and understanding uh, as much as you can about the author. You're looking at archaeology, you're looking at, at sociology, you're, you're just, you're in it. You know, the, these scholars go to the places where these things happened to try to understand. They're, it's quite a gift to us. But if, you know, if, if you're going to sit down and write a commentary 
on any book of the Bible, you've got one great challenge. You are now the last person in a long line of people. I mean, Christians have been writing about what the Bible says for 1,800 years at least, trying to, you know, here's how we as people can make sense of it. That's what they've been doing. So if I'm going to sit down and write a commentary on Luke, I mean, there's a ton of people who have done that and done a really good job with it uh, before me. So the first thing that I need to figure out and the first thing that I need to communicate is, here's why I thought I should write another one, you know? Not just to, you know, make a buck. Turns out you don't make a lot of money on commentaries. Um, not a big market for that. Um, but uh, here's why I decided to to write a new commentary. And, and so if you're going to dig into a commentary, those first few pages are actually really important. You need to know why this person thought it was worth their time and now worth your time to spend time, too many times in that sentence, uh, with with this particular way of understanding it. That's how Luke starts his gospel. He acknowledges that other people have already written these stories out, that they've already told the stories. Luke, Luke acknowledges that he is not a, an eyewitness of these things, but instead he's spending time with the eyewitnesses. He's spending time with the other people who wrote. You know, about 50% of what's in Luke is in Mark. And that material is also in Matthew. So those three are really similar to each other. We call them the synoptic gospels. If you want to impress your friends, that's what those three are called, the synoptic gospels. But so half of Luke is there, but obviously Luke pulls in a bunch of other information and it was important to him to explain, here's why I wrote this. And frankly, you can probably think of books that you've read that the first you know, a couple pages, the author makes a great argument for why you should read this book or, or makes some snarky comment that makes you like their tone or whatever. You know, there's one book, um, uh, actually, well, one book that I read in college, uh, um, The Irresistible Revolution. Some of you guys may remember that book, but he finishes with this line, you, you know, something along the lines of, um, if you stole this book, I hope you'll be convicted by it. If you borrowed this book, I, you know, I, I respect your frugality. And if you bought it, thank you for buying it. You know, it's like, great. That's, that's a cool way to start a book. So, all right. So, um, I always appreciate when an author tells you why they wrote. And that's what Luke does here. I love the gospel of Luke. Um, this this presentation of Jesus contains a lot that the other stories don't. It shows us a picture of Jesus that is fiery and passionate, particularly for uh, the people who are left out and left behind in society. Um, it is written from a viewpoint that is incredibly helpful alongside the other Gospels. And we only read four verses today. Like I said, we're going to go uh, faster after this. But these four verses give us some keys that I think we need to keep in mind to understand the rest of the book. Luke told us how he pulled this together. He tells us who his audience uh, was and what he hoped it would accomplish in his reader's life. 
and other readers' lives. And if we can keep these things in mind, uh, we're going to be in position to see Luke as, as Luke wanted us to see it. This uh, benign introduction, it seems kind of, you know, it's, at first I was like, am I really going to just preach on this little thing? But uh, the more I dug into it, um, this, this uh, shows us we're able to discover the gospel in a new way. We get to see the gospel as powerfully unifying, mysteriously authoritative, and revolutionarily significant. I'm not sure if that's a word, but we're going with it. Powerfully unifying, mysteriously authoritative, and revolutionarily significant. But before we get to that, let's talk about the people involved. Like Luke. Who is this guy? Who is Luke? Um, you know, the same person wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts. And the way we assembled our Bibles is confusing because we squish John in the middle and we don't realize that it's actually one continuous story. It's two volumes, you know, Luke part one, Luke part two, we could call it. And never in those very long books, they're the two longest books in the New Testament, never in those books does the author ever say, hey, I'm Luke, by the way, this is written by me, Luke. Uh, he doesn't identify his name. It was pretty early on in, in, uh, in the early church that other people started saying, yeah, the, the author of these books is Luke, and no one questioned it, and that's what we've said ever since, and that's fine, all right? We, so we can't be totally sure, but I'm fine with church tradition that Luke is the guy who wrote it, and and. A little bit after that, people started saying, Luke is a physician. He's a doctor. You may have heard that, the good doctor. And so uh, I love these the ancient devotional writings about Luke. They'll, they'll talk about Luke as, as the physician for the soul. And if you, if you read it, it's therapy for your, for your very spiritual life. And sure, that's good. Um, here's, what, here's what we can learn about Luke from the stuff that he wrote. Number one, this guy was, uh, he writes in a very sophisticated way. He uses a style of Greek that's different than most of the rest of the New Testament. He's, he's not like a Jewish guy who then learned Greek in order to write. He's someone who clearly is, you know, he's educated and he, he, he's a native Greek speaker. Um, so he writes like a scholar. And he drops a big hint about who he is or one detail about his life at the end of the book of Acts, you know, the other Luke part two, what I called. For the whole story of Paul, you know, which is a lot of the book of Acts, uh, it's been saying they went there and they did this and then Paul did this and he did that. And then near the end of Acts, Paul's traveling up by, by ship. You know, he's got this situation with the Roman government. He's got to sort out. And all of a sudden, the writings start saying, and then we set sail from here to here. And we travel to this place. And he starts speaking in the first person plural. In other words, Luke is saying, I was, I was there. I, I'm part of this story. So we know that the author of these books was a traveling companion, at least for a time, with the apostle Paul. And probably through Paul got connected with a lot of the other church leaders. So, all right, he was involved in the early spread of the gospel through the Roman Empire. That's what we know about Luke. That, that's what we know. Um, we know even less about Luke's audience, except we have one great detail that we don't have about Luke. 
we know the audience's name. Most excellent Theophilus. I mean, what a name. I told the Bible study guys that I will buy a nice steak for the next baby boy in this church named Theophilus. I mean, come on, you guys. That's a great name. And we will call him Most Excellent Theophilus for the rest of his life. All right? So, all right. So let's talk about this guy in two ways because we want to talk about him as the real guy. But then there's also kind of the symbol of Theophilus. So let's talk about the real Theophilus. Will the real Theophilus please stand up? Okay. So I don't know, guys. I don't know. Okay, so who is this guy? Um, Based on some of the things Luke says here, he's either a convert, a new convert to Christianity, or he's someone who's friendly to the message about Christianity, and he wants to know more. He's, it, Luke says, I, I want to write, so, you know, you've heard these stories, and so I decided to pull things together so that you could be certain about them. So, there, you know, he knows that Theophilus uh, has been exposed to the teachings about Jesus, and he's piecing it all together. Um, the symbolic Theophilus, uh, you know, here, here's what a lot of kind of scholars have done with Theophilus. This name, like I said, it's great. It's made up of two Greek words, theos and philos. And those words mean God and friend. You know, Theophilus is a friend of God. And so, you know, lots of commentators will say, Anyone who's a friend of God, you know, is the audience of this book. You know, it's written for you. All right, that's, that's cool. And also a reason to name the next baby boy born in this church, Theophilus. Um, so, you know, the question is, okay, uh, Theophilia, maybe? Yeah, let's, we'll, we'll, we'll workshop it together. Um, so the question is, you know, did Luke create a fictional character to be a recipient? You know, I'm, I'm writing this to everyone who's, who's uh, you know, a friend of God, or, or was there a real person? I mean, one, uh, one person says, we will have to assume that whoever Luke's intended reader may have been, anyone who is a friend of God may be the reader implied by Luke, and that we may count ourselves to be thus implicated if we answer to the compliment. Okay, it is a compliment to be a friend of God. But I think it's more likely that Luke is, that, sorry, Theophilus is a real person. Um, early on, a lot, when, when people would do a project like this, you know, in the first and second century, they would have a patron. In other words, a person who is bankrolling the project. And, and to call someone most excellent so-and-so is to say, you are a person of means, you're a person of high class. He's maybe even involved in the, in the Roman government. I mean, this guy is an influential person. And, and he hired Luke, presumably, you know, to pull all of this stuff together. You know, it's a, Luke's traveling all over the place. He's interviewing people. And so Theophilus is, you know, he's involved. And probably what Luke's going to do is he's going to send this to Theophilus. And then Theophilus is going to pay a bunch of people to make copies of it. And they're going to send it out. I mean, Theophilus is an important guy in this. So here's what's interesting to me. Theophilus, by the way, is a super 
Roman name. Luke is a Roman guy. This is, this is probably the only book in the New Testament written by a Gentile, not by a Jew. So that's interesting, this and Acts. And, uh, and he's writing it to a Gentile. He's writing it to a, a Greek-speaking Roman. And, and he's a wealthy guy. So, okay, a book written for a wealthy Gentile who's familiar with the teachings of Jesus, friendly to the teachings of Jesus, but would benefit from hearing them in a new way and seeing it all fit together. Hmm, who does that sound like? Well, people of South Metro Denver, you are far more like Theophilus than probably any of the other original intended audiences of the New Testament. You, that's, that's the case. You know, by virtue of living in this, you know, in this area, you are a, a person of means on a global scale. You have more comfort and access and power than, uh, than most other people in the world. You can read this like Theophilus. The way Luke tells the story of Jesus is meant to draw people like you into it and help you think about what to do with the life that you have been given. So it matters who Theophilus was. Um, Luke mentions that there were eyewitnesses that he's working with, and these that, that there were even eyewitnesses from the beginning. And I just think this is a great little line. Um, m- several scholars think that Luke even interviewed Mary and got the details. You know, this he tells the story of the birth of Jesus, which we're going to wait till, you know, Advent. We'll kind of circle back to the beginning to talk about the early chapters. But he tells the story of, of the pregnancies and birth with details that the others don't have. I think that's really cool. And he says that he pulled it all together to be an orderly account. In other words, he pulled it together in order to communicate something as clearly as he can. He pieced together all of the evidence in order to achieve his intended goal. What was his intended goal? He says it to Theophilus. He says his intended goal is so that he might know the certainty of the things you have been taught. It's an interesting way to say that. You know, I'm not telling you this stuff to tell you for the first time, but I'm telling you so that you'll be sure of it, so that you will know the certainty of the things that you've been taught. But, okay, what does that phrase mean? All right, and the answers to that question, what does that phrase mean, is where we're going to spend the rest of the time. I think there are several, and these answers give us the tools we need to read Luke well. Number one, it could be a question of accuracy. Theophilus might be asking, are these stories true? That could be the question that he's asking. Did they really happen? Luke seems to know the information that Theophilus already has. He writes this wonderful presentation of the gospel to say, I hope you can see through all my research that I am verifying the stories that you've heard. You know, you've picked me out. You know, I'm a, I'm a doctor, maybe. <laughs> I'm, I'm an educated man, and you've sent me out to do the research. You know, it's like investigative journalism that Theophilus hired Luke to do. All right? So he knows Theophilus already has, and he, he writes this, 
this presentation to say, I hope you can see that it's true. But Luke enters into a conversation with all of the other gospel witnesses, the other gospel writers. He doesn't do it in order to say that Matthew, Mark, and John got it wrong. He actually does it to say they got it right. I'm writing this all so that you can see that they got it right. So when we ask the question, are these stories true? What we discover is that by saying it again to say they are true is an act of powerful unity. That's what's happening. He is joining in a great conversation about the work of Jesus, testing it, affirming it, telling it again. And whenever we do that, you guys, we repeat the gospel as often as we can. Whenever we do that, we are practicing one of our core values as a church. We are pursuing unity because the story that we tell about Jesus is being told upstairs in our attic later today. It's being told, that's a joke. It's not our attic, but you get it. It's being told in the gym you get it later today. Guys, the stories that we tell are being told uh, up and down Broadway. We get to join in this great conversation about Jesus and be part of this massive, wonderful choir saying he is worthy of our praise. Coming together around the wonderful works of God through Jesus Christ is the ultimate unifying act. We're not just unifying for the sake of unity. We're saying these stories are true and they bring us together. That's what Luke is telling us in this introduction, the first thing. But he also, when he's saying, I want to, so that you might know the certainty of the things you've been taught, he might also be asking a question of legitimacy. Is this movement legit? So let's return to most excellent Theophilus. For a moment, it implies well, his title implies that he's wealthy, that he's a Roman official who's considering the message of Jesus. It's also possible that Luke is doing all of this research after the year 70 AD. And that matters because the year 70 is the year that that the Romans kind of came in and conquered Jerusalem again and they destroyed the temple. And for all of the early believers, they, you know, they thought of themselves as a Jewish sect. They, were, they thought of themselves as, as the, the Jewish believers who had followed God and discovered the true Messiah had come. They thought they were the pure branch of Judaism. And so a guy like Theophilus, who might be considering joining the movement, is saying, well, gosh, how, how can I know Judaism is legit if your, if your power center has just been destroyed? If the thing that symbolizes your God doesn't have a stone left on it, because that's what happened in the year 70 AD. They totally, utterly destroyed the temple. I mean, my goodness. Theophilus might be wondering if maybe he hitched his wagon to the wrong horse. And not only that, Theophilus has to grapple with the question of allegiance. You know what this early group of Jesus followers say all the time? Their rallying cry is, Jesus is Lord. And that may sound generic to you, but that's what the whole Roman Empire said about Caesar. Caesar is Lord. And so are they, are they revolutionaries? 
Are they going to try to build up an army and overthrow Rome? He's got, he's got to ask these questions, especially if he works for Rome. You know, they're questioning his employer, so to speak. And, you know, he could die if he gets caught following them. So, my goodness, he's got to ask that question. You know, can he follow Jesus without being a traitor to Rome? He needs to know what sort of legitimacy does this happen. And throughout Luke, the answer that he gives is he wants to demonstrate the gospel's mysterious authority. This this message has profound authority even after the destruction of the temple. And it's a mysterious authority because Luke will bend over backwards to say the Roman officials didn't think Jesus was guilty. I mean, he's going to show Pilate thinking that washing his hands of the whole thing. He's going to show Paul later on proving his innocence in Roman courts. He's going to be showing again and again that this kingdom is above but isn't looking to overthrow the Roman Empire. And that's something that he's going to, it has a mysterious authority. It thrives even maybe especially when pagan rulers are making the laws of the land. That's when it thrives. He needs to show this comfortable Roman and us comfortable Americans that the authority of Jesus' kingdom is something altogether different than anything he has known before. It is mysterious authority. All right, it might be a question of, uh, is it true? It might be a question of legitimacy. Or it might be a question of significance. All right, what does it matter? What does it matter? All right, all these stories, what do they matter? We don't need to go much further into Luke's first chapter to get a hint of what he means. God's reign, his kingdom has broken into this world. It's broken into this world. And it is rewriting the rules about privilege, power, righteousness, wealth, possessions, well-being, the truth about the teachings or the certainty of the things that you've been taught is the spiritual realities that they imply. Luke, more than any of the other three Gospels, draws our attention to what's happening in the usually unseen world. He mentions the Holy Spirit more often with more power and specificity than the other three. He mentions angels and demons coming, getting involved in the story. This this message has spiritual implications. And it's going to show that God is on the side of the powerless, not the powerful. We don't need to dig far into chapter 1, past what we read, to get a taste of this. The significance of the events is demonstrated in the, in the stories of, of Mary and Elizabeth's pregnancies and their birth. There are invisible powers at play. An angel visits Zechariah and Mary. The Spirit fills and causes baby John, who's still in Elizabeth's womb to leap at the presence of Jesus. Um, Zechariah is filled with the Spirit and he prophesies about John and Jesus who will, not, who will work not merely to restore Israel, but to bring salvation to sinners. It's a spiritual significance that we're going to see. Theophilus has heard the stories about Jesus. Now Luke wants him to grasp the implications of it. I mean, it, 
if we read this well, you guys, I hope that we see that this world is charged with the presence of God. That there are spiritual things happening in every conversation between us. In the things that we choose to value, the places that we choose to give our money, the, the things that we choose to spend our time with, there are spiritual implications of all of that. A disciple of Jesus recognizes that they are not their own. That's what this will teach us. We consider everything lost for the sake of knowing Jesus. As a New Testament scholar David De Silva writes, he says in Luke, discipleship means laying, laying no further claims to your possessions as your own, but putting them entirely into God's discretionary fund. Here's what I'm saying. In those early days, a poor, overlooked Jewish person might hear the good news about Jesus, where he says, you know, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven, and they would immediately know, this is for me. But a powerful person, a Roman official, a rich person, might say, that movement is for them. It's for them, not for me. What do these events among the blue-collar Jews of backwoods Galilee have to do with me? Luke wants Theophilus and us to see that it has everything to do with us. He's describing an apocalypse. That means the invisible is becoming visible. It doesn't mean, you know, the end of the world. It means the invisible is becoming visible. He's saying this story spiritually and in terms of all of our values has revolutionary significance. In the words of uh, another scholar, Joel Green, he says, it is not too much to say that the Lucan narrative is an invitation to embrace an alternative worldview and to live as if the reign of God had already revolutionized this age. In other words, if you read Luke right, you're going to be weird in all the best ways. Theophilus did not need to take up arms against the Roman Empire. He didn't need to quit his job. He needed to take up arms against himself and his own values, and the way he sees the world. And that's what Luke calls us to do. The certainty of these things is an invitation to follow Jesus to the cross, to die to ourselves, because, he has because, because in the, the stories, we encounter a Lord with whom we can find true life. The orderly account Theophilus is about to hear is indeed revolutionary. Because when we hear it, it sets us free to entrust ourselves entirely to God. I, I think that's the promise that's offered to us in this. It will tell us that the news about Jesus means everything to us. We will hear this story, friends, of the one who will gather his friends in a borrowed room at the end of his life, and he will continue to turn upside down their sense of what that what the powerful do, what the weak do, how to win, how to lose. He's going to be doing it in every scene of his life. And he does it in the borrowed upper room at the Last Supper too. I want to read to you exactly how Luke describes this meal. We'll look at it this way often throughout the Gospel of Luke. Jesus said it like, or Luke says it like this. Now when the hour came... Jesus took his place at the table, and the apostles joined him. And he said to them, 
I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And then he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup again after they had eaten, saying, This is... I'm sorry. And in the same way, this is the cup that is poured out for you. This is the covenant in my blood. Friends, that's how Luke describes this meal. I got tripped up because I always say it differently on Sundays. What a gift. Jesus is telling us that the revolutionary significance, the legitimacy, the authority of this story is being infused into this meal that he gave for us to eat every week. We join together in unity with the whole church of Jesus Christ when we come to this table, one table, one bread, one cup, which tells this whole grand story. Let's pray together. Lord, this whole sermon has been just a, a, a plea to myself and all of us that we would read and study and hear the Gospel of Luke looking for what you are doing behind the scenes. And so I pray, Lord, that you would open us up to that. I pray that, that we would be sensitized to the movement of your Spirit, even now calling us to the table where we discover that by virtue of the work of our King, we can die to ourselves and truly live. So in Jesus' name, I invite you, my brothers and sisters, to come and receive the body of Christ which is given for you and the blood of Christ which is shed for you. Amen. Let's worship together as we come.